This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin, Melancholy, Nessa, Emperor Cuffia, Rockefeller, Campanella, Communist Block. That is quite a block. Hello again, and welcome to episode 34 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's Rock'em Sock'em action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with the communist bloc. Now, Katie, sometimes we have to sift through what Billy has sung about and work out which specific bit he's talking about because the communist bloc is one of Billy's broadest topics. It exists from 1946 to 1991. There's the East European part, which is the part that I probably instinctively think about. Yeah. Then there's all the Asian countries. And then there's the countries in the Americas like Cuba and Nicaragua and Granada for a brief period. So we're going to narrow it down a little bit today, aren't we? We're going to assume that Billy was talking about the Eastern European bit because it appears in his song in the sort of mid to early 1950s section. Yeah. So it might have been inspired by the East German worker uprising of 1953, Katie. Oh, I see somebody in this room has done their research. (laughs) I'm probably putting words in Billy's mouth there. I mean, we ended up just throwing a dart at a map virtually (laughs) to come up with a topic today. Um, And we decided to focus on Bulgaria. Yeah, because there is so much we could talk about in this topic. So we thought, actually, what was it like for ordinary people in this period? Were all the countries in the communist bloc the same and if not how did they differ and Katie we don't know much about Bulgaria I know a little bit about Bulgarian football and Bulgarian track and field stars and a little bit about the female voice choirs of which we shall talk more later but first of all let's say hello to Eric Halsey Eric is a Bulgarian history buff with his own podcast the Bulgarian history podcast good name it's been going since 2013 each season looks at a different era in Bulgarian history Eric welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a a fun, funky podcast, and I'm super excited to be here and uh, chat about, well, an an interesting, of course, I'm biased, they're all interesting to me, but a very interesting portion of Bulgarian history and uh, talk about that communist bloc. So I think my first question, Katie, would be how it all starts. So we know how the Second World War finishes. How, Eric, does Bulgaria end up under Russian control? So it's interesting because, you know, Bulgaria is a very weird country in the Second World War. It it tried very hard to stay out of the war. And essentially, uh, Nazi Germany brought its forces to the border with Bulgaria and Romania. And, you know, they were going down to help uh, the the Italians in Greece. And they calmly explained to Bulgaria, listen, we think it's going to take our forces about two weeks to cross Bulgaria. And to be clear, that's whether you want us to cross or whether you don't want us to cross. (laughs) Nazi diplomacy. They they were just like, it makes no difference. Uh, So you have until this date to decide. You can uh, sign the tripartite pact, become our ally, or we'll just uh, roll right over you. And, you know, the government was trying very hard to stay out of things. Uh, the, the king at the time was ardently anti-war. He had seen the devastation of the First World War and the Balkan Wars and just did not want that. And, uh, you know, they basically literally about an hour before the deadline, they finally decided, OK, fine, we'll sign the pact. So they ostensibly became a German ally. But there were a lot of asterisks there because the whole war, they were just like, yeah, we're not we're not interested in doing any of this. They, they helped to occupy some parts of Yugoslavia that they wanted to eventually control a little bit of Greece. But 
essentially Germany kept saying, hey, you know, wouldn't you like to declare war on the Soviet Union? Go help us in the Eastern Front. They're like, no, like uh, we're afraid. I mean, our soldiers really fight much better when they're at home. And, you know, if we send them over there, we're afraid maybe Turkey might get involved. So it's really best if we just hang tight here. So the whole war, uh, you know, for most of the war, Bulgaria is just hanging out occupying a bit of territory, but not doing much of anything else. In fact, they are the only German ally that had a operating Soviet embassy for the whole war. They never declared war on the Soviet Union. The embassy was never closed. They you know, essentially had regular relations despite being a German ally. And this is because the tripartite pact says they only had to join a war if a member was attacked. And because they did the attacking with Soviet Union, Bulgaria had no obligation to get involved. So that's how things stand until those Soviet armies roll through Romania. And at this point, Bulgaria is like, listen, everybody, you know, we never wanted to be a part of this. We'd love it. We could just get out of this war. And the allies say, no, only unconditional surrender. And so the Soviet forces get to the Bulgarian border, declare war and invade. And at that point, Bulgaria switches sides and at a brief time is at war with both Germany and the Soviet Union. And it then helps the Soviet forces fight all the way uh, into Central Europe. And then basically the Soviets kind of orchestrate uh, a bit of a, as you call it, a coup, kind of overthrow the, the existing government and install a communist government. And that is that. So that's kind of how it happened. I'm so interested in the fact that Bulgaria is so savvy with office politics. You know, they're like they're, they're doing the bare minimum. They're look they're they're looking busy at their desk, but they're actually just kind of biding time until the next coffee break. I mean, the, the, one of the reasons they were able to do that is just because Tsar Boris III was someone that Hitler really liked and admired. And so he, you know, again, he was the, the leader of the country at the time. It was very anti-war. And so he kind of exploited Hitler's kind of admiration of him to sort of string Hitler along and sort of kept saying like, ah, yeah, no, we're, we're really busy. You know, just <laughs> kept stringing him along. Although famously, the last meeting he had with Hitler, Hitler finally was just done. He was furious and just got into a screaming match with him. And very shortly after that, Boris III died under very mysterious circumstances, some kind of a heart issue. Mm. And to this day, we're not quite sure whether Hitler had him poisoned or maybe whether the Soviets had him poisoned or, you know, all the stress of it got to him because he was, I think, in his 40s. He was fairly young. Uh, and so it's still kind of up in the air what happened. Uh, and the, the irony is that then his son, Simeon, who was just a child, technically became the ruler under a regency, and he's still alive and was prime minister for a while in the 2000s. But he's the only person who was the leader of a country that fought in World War II that's still alive. <laughs> so the communist bloc doesn't sound that blocky to me, Eric. It sounds, if it is a bloc, it sounds like uh, each part of the of the wall is a different colored Lego brick. They've all got their own stories. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, some some of those states were were very rebellious, like, you know, Yugoslavia very soon was was say, you know, saying I'm out of here. Albania was also like peace guys. Once once the Soviet Union uh, said we don't like Stalin anymore, Albania was like, no, Stalin was the greatest Stalin forever. Screw you guys. <laughs> um, and yeah, whereas on the very, very opposite end of that spectrum, you had Bulgaria that was just the most loyal of the loyal states where, you know, I, I always put it that like when Moscow said jump, uh, Sofia said, great, how high? Like, what do you need, boss? Just always there, uh, super loyal, all the way to the fact that after the collapse of communism, Bulgaria was the only Eastern European kind of communist country that in its first democratically democratic elections elected the former communist party into power. Wow. That is loyalty. I mean, I guess <laughs> they really uh, swallowed the Kool-Aid there. And I guess communism was working for them. Uh, 
but the Soviets were in violation of the Yalta Agreement, weren't they, by making the countries around them communist satellites. Uh, what went on there? Why were they so naughty? Yeah, I mean, essentially, they just rolled in, violated the Yalta Agreement. The U.S., you know, lodged its protest and said, hey, we see what you're doing. You're violating this agreement. But ultimately, Stalin just said, so. And there wasn't much the U.S. could do. I mean, you know, Churchill famously had Operation Unthinkable, where he sort of considered a, a strike against the Soviets and, you know, restarting a world war. But uh, ultimately, you know, absent going to war, there really wasn't much uh, much the U.S. could do because, you know, the Soviet troops were all over those countries. Uh, foreign troops weren't anywhere near there. And uh, that was that. It was a fait accompli. It sounds like for some of these countries, Eric, that they were punched in the face by the Nazis. The Nazis went, they were punched in the face by the Russians and life was pretty miserable. It just depended who was your repressive uh, foreign overlord. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, the famous the, you know, joke, not quite a joke about, but like just Bulgaria in the 20th century is just sad. It's rough. Um, just losing war after war after war and kind of trying to pick themselves up and then just getting knocked back again. Um, but essentially, you know, for, for Bulgaria compared to those other states, again, you know, they came out of the Second World War pretty unscathed. I mean, Sofia was did receive some bombing. Um, the building I'm in right now uh, was subjected to that kind of bombing. But, you know, nothing on the on the scale of you know, Poland or, or uh, Czech Republic, Hungary, any, any of these countries that, that faced a lot more kind of devastation. But yeah, coming right out of that, going into collectivization. But I think for a lot of Bulgarians, they didn't see things quite as badly because, you know, for them, like the you know, they had the the two Balkan Wars and the First World War, and then the interwar period was incredibly chaotic. Lots of kind of coups and counter coups, not a lot of like time for really development. And then Second World War, and so you know, Bulgaria was starting from a pretty low place. And for most people, you know, it had been a while before standards of living had really grown. And so suddenly, having a lot of stability and having a lot of foreign aid coming from the Soviet Union meant that it was a lot easier for them to kind of. Uh, gain some level of prosperity finally. And so I think for that reason, for Bulgaria, this period was, uh, I think, seen a little more rosy, uh, so to speak. And what was the Soviets' technique for imposing themselves in Bulgaria? They did that whole, hey, guess what? We're stealing land from the rich people and we're giving it to you peasants. And then, oh, no, we need that land for collective farms. Well, there wasn't as much land redistribution here because, you know, Bulgaria during the 1930s and 1920s had had some agrarian governments. That's what I wrote my master's thesis about. It was a very bizarre whole movement that like no one ever talks about. But kind of in the 19-teens, 1920s, there were a lot of powerful agrarian parties around Europe. And then they were eventually kind of crushed by the, the right and the left sort of joined forces and said, screw these guys. And now they barely get a, a mention. But they did some land reform. And so, you know, Bulgarian land was already fairly evenly distributed. There weren't a lot of really big landholders. Uh, they didn't have those kinds of problems. Um, yeah, it was more going after, mostly it was about building. It was about getting in there, building these collective farms, building these huge apartment blocks, building a lot of uh, new neighborhoods. I mean, Sofia is full of these huge neighborhoods with funny names like Youth 1, Youth 2, Youth 3, Youth 4, Friendship 1, Friendship 2. Um, these are all <laughs> in Bulgarian, of course, but uh, all real neighborhoods names and built by the communists uh, these huge blocks and things and so it was just getting in here expanding building a lot of industry uh, and that's kind of how it how it uh, how things turned out here what was from the Soviet point of view what is the point of the communist block is it a geographical buffer 
between Russia and the West um, and what they might perceive as a Western threat? Is it an empire in the old sense where they can plunder and pillage and take all the natural resources and the, the best of what the satellite states have to offer? A bit of both. I mean, the, the important thing is that, as you pointed out, you know, right at the beginning, this lasted from, what, 46 to 91. So the, the relationships evolved. I'd say some of both of those, right? It was definitely a buffer. I mean, without a doubt, you know, when Stalin was imposing control over these states, he was very concerned about Germany being resurgent, uh, despite it being in, you know, in ruins. But, you know, it had happened before. And so he wanted to have plenty of buffer room, as well as, of course, just the idea of spreading the communist revolution. Uh, there was that and and being an empire. I mean, I'd say it was a mixture of all three of those kind of closely intertwined. You know, all these states did have nascent communist uh, parties. In Bulgaria, the party had been banned for a long time uh, because, well, they, they had tried to lead a kind of a revolution in 1923 that was a disaster. Then they had actually the deadliest terrorist attack in European history, I think until the Lockerbie bombing. So the Communist Party was not very popular, but throughout the Second World War, they had uh, partisans that were up there fighting against the government. And so, you know, from the Soviet perspective, it was, yes, you know, creating the buffer, yes, expanding their sort of empire, yes, spreading the revolution, but also, you know, they had been supporting these nascent communist parties and uh, secret organizations, depending on the country, for decades. And, you know, it wanted to put these people who it had fostered in charge because they were, you know, the, their close allies. And and the idea, as, as we'll see, was very much that uh, these people should be in charge and they should do whatever Moscow tells them to. And a lot of the problems came when the people that uh, the Soviets put in charge decided that maybe they would have their own independent ideas of how to run a communist country and how to run foreign policy, which generally Moscow did not appreciate. A good example of a country very much trying to do its own thing within the communist bloc is Yugoslavia, as you'd mentioned earlier. And apparently Stalin had suggested to Yugoslavia's Tito that he merge with Bulgaria, uh, like join forces in a very coercive fashion rather than cast his partnership aspirations towards perhaps Albania and Greece. Um, but Tito uh, didn't go for this. What's the story there? Well, so this this wasn't a new idea. Like ideas about creating a, some kind of Balkan federal state ha, have been around since the 19th century. And I think from Stalin's perspective, we can't read his mind, but uh, a lot of the speculation I think is fair that he, you know, wanted to use Bulgaria as a balance to Tito and a balance to Tito's independence because Tito kept doing things that Stalin didn't want him to do. And this was extra frustrating for Stalin because the West assumed that anything Tito's doing must be something that Stalin directly ordered. And Stalin wanted him to do the opposite. And so you know, Tito would would push for a little bit of territory here or, or you know, support some communist guerrillas there. And Stalin said, no, please don't do that. And he said, no, I'm going to do it anyways. And the West is like, oh, the Soviets are uh, intermeddling. They're they're screwing things up. And, and Stalin is just so frustrated. And ultimately, they just couldn't kind of work out an agreement. And uh, the Russians, uh, the Soviets just sort of said, OK, you know what, forget it. Uh, this isn't going to work. And ultimately, uh, Yugoslavia just pulled away and did its own thing uh, until it collapsed in the 90s. If you didn't want a communist government in your country, Eric, in that post-war period, what options did you have? There there weren't a lot of, of options. Um, Bulgaria didn't have, you know, I'm sure it wasn't easy for Bulgarians to kind of emigrate at this time. But, you know, I know quite a few of them did. And uh, Bulgaria or the United States has some Bulgarian emigrant population from that time, particularly in places like Chicago. But 
yeah, they had to kind of do whatever they could to get out because, yeah, once the communist bloc and was kind of firmly established, it became very, very difficult to leave Bulgaria for any reason. And even if you did leave Bulgaria, well, you, you had to be careful. Oh, the ricin, the ricin tipped umbrella. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> so, wait, wait, so what happened? Tell me the story. So he was a dissident writer, uh, you know, originally a darling of the Bulgarian Communist Party, but ultimately kind of broke with them and, and wasn't very happy with them. He he moved to London, uh, was living there and still kind of, if I remember right, he was working for like Radio for Europe, uh, but kind of, making the communist government in Bulgaria look bad. And so they sent their secret agents with a uh, poison-tipped umbrella and just sort of bumped into him on the streets of London and murdered him. It was London Bridge, wasn't it? Wasn't he walking across London Bridge and someone walking past plunges the tip of their umbrella into his foot? Ah. Yeah. And just keeps walking. So, okay, so that, that's a problem nowadays because we have portable umbrellas without tips that fold. <laughs> so you'd have to yeah. think of a different way to stab somebody in the foot. You'd also have to hope that he wasn't wearing a pair of particularly stout shoes. I don't know if he preferred a moccasin or something like that because, you know, a workman's boot, the tip of an umbrella is not getting through. Yeah, and also what time of the year? Like summertime would be good with flip-flops because you could just get right in there <laughs> with a thong yeah. in between those rubber straps. I need to plan on how I'm going to assassinate uh, dissidents. This, there's a lot of considerations here. Ooh, Katie, this is quite the episode. Shall we have a cheeky little breather come back after the adverts? Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy. I'm a hunter. It's what I do. He's called KC. Our rules of engagement are pretty simple. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go. He's an American vigilante. And there is one of the biggest men I've ever seen. And he's got a knife in his hand. He rescues kidnapped children. There's no feeling in the world like putting a child back in the arms of its parents. By any means necessary. Well, it's ugly. You want me to make sure I don't hurt anybody? He scares me. And he kind of looked at me, and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here. And he might scare you. About got tears in your eyes right now just thinking about that, don't you? Download the podcast, American Vigilante. Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now. Eventually... People did start to agitate against the domination of Moscow in various countries. So uh, in Hungary, um, there was, and also in in, uh, in Prague, uh, there was an East German worker uprising. Of course, this is before such things as so- social media. But Eric, was there a sense that amongst people in these countries that there was unrest and that there was a something to be gained by uh, joining the swell of momentum? Well, for the most part, I mean, you didn't have a lot of independent media. I mean, so do you, you know, what you heard about any kind of unrest would be very, very filtered. Um, and famously, you know, most of this unrest, you know, when it started happening, it was usually very quickly put down. I mean, you think about the, the Hungarian uprising. Uh, yeah, I used to live in Budapest, and so every day walking to and from university and things, I'd see the bullet holes and the pop marks and things. Wow. You know, with that, you know, just the, the Warsaw Pact, right, just invaded and, and really crushed it. Similar case with the Prague Spring. And so Hungarian Revolution was 1956, Prague Spring 1968. And these were yeah both really critical moments for the, the Eastern Bloc because those were cases where 
you know, the the sort of under Moscow's auspices, the Eastern Bloc jointly invaded these countries. And a lot of countries were very mad about that and angry that they had done that. Bulgaria was never one of them. Again, they're the most loyal, the loyal. They're like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going against uh, Moscow. We got to go in there and put a stop to this. Somewhat off topic, but if you ever want to see a movie about kind of about the Prague Spring, but not really, there's this Czech film called Pililski. It's like cozy spaces from the 90s that my Czech friends recommended to me. It's like a beloved film there. And I've never heard anyone who's not Czech talk about it, but it's just a delightfully hilarious little little movie about that time. And it was kind of about everyday life uh, in the communist box. So if you want to see a, a charming little movie about everyday life, I'd recommend that if you, if you can find it. It's not that easy to track down. Talking about everyday life. Eric, so I had, Katie, a Polish uncle, so he married my aunt, but I remember all the things that he would try and send back to his family in Poland, so it was mainly second-hand clothes. He would just send over bundles of second-hand clothes because they didn't have access to clothes, and then there were the dollar shops where you could buy better stuff, so they would try and send dollars oh, and this would have been what in the 80s would have been late 70s 80s yeah. yeah so eric i don't know if that rings true of bulgaria but just that give us a sense of what it was like to be an ordinary person in one of those communist bloc countries in the 60s and 70s what you would have access to what sort of jobs you'd be doing so you know you're yeah it was usually good for people in the sense that you could get an apartment uh, even today bulgaria has the highest home ownership rate in the world and it's largely for that reason like most bulgarians i know their families still have a couple apartments overwhelmingly it is these kind of uh kind you know panelkias are called like panel blocks uh so you could get an apartment you know you could have you know you got some clothes a bicycle you know you could get basic things like that but like blue jeans absolutely not you know that that was kind of a black market thing um you know, famously, there, there's a famous Chalga singer uh, called Aziz from Bulgaria. And I remember learning that his he was born in prison. His mother was in prison for selling blue jeans illegally. <laughs> and so that's that the context of his birth. I always found that fascinating. But, but you know, food was fairly widely available. Even today, you know, Bulgaria is a large producer of uh, fruit and vegetables. But the way people got it was very specific. Most folks, if they lived in a city, they had some family members uh, that lived in the countryside, and those folks would grow a lot of vegetables and share those with the family in the city. And even today, this is a very common pattern. I know I'm married to a Bulgarian, and my in-laws, you know, practically every weekend, they, they come up from, they live an hour away, and they just bring whatever vegetables they happen to have. And so, you know, one day, we just suddenly, here's a giant pile of potatoes, here's a giant pile of tomatoes or peppers or something. But yeah, for everyday life, things were were fairly calm. I mean, Bulgaria didn't have any of those big uprisings like you had in, you know, uh, in places like Hungary. It was, yeah, fairly kind of calm, fairly normal here, which is, again, why there's a little bit more nostalgia for that period for Bulgarians, because, you know, they were coming out of a period where they were a lot less uh, wealthy and a less well off compared to a lot of those Central European countries. And so, you know, the, the communist period was comparatively uh, a calmer and more prosperous time for a lot of those kind of everyday people, even if a lot of the elites saw, you know, they lost everything for a lot of them, right, as, as they generally did in a communist system. So. Eric, I'm really interested in this whole idea of nostalgia for communism because I experienced that myself. Uh, I went, I lived in Moscow for a couple of years as a child, and then I returned to Moscow about five years ago, and I was astonished to see that they have these themed diners, 
And the whole yeah. point is that it's that kind of like Johnny Rocket, except instead of being nostalgia for the U.S. 50s happy days, it's nostalgia for the 50s communist days. So you can drink bad, you know, fermented beetroot juice and substandard beer and, you know, some weird uh, mystery meatloaf. And having lived in Moscow uh, in the early 70s at the height of the Cold War, I can attest to the fact that it was grim. Uh, the shelves were, were barren. If there was a delivery of cabbage or bread, uh, you know, the word would go out in the street and there'd be instant cues. So it was, you know, tough times. And yet there's people now who have this sensibility of, oh, those were the good old days we were taken care of. And d- do you have that same experience now in uh, Sofia in Bulgaria. So I'd say it's 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 ironic because it is quite different here. I think again, you know, I said I used to live in Budapest, and there, yeah, you'd have like hit little hip cafes that would use old mid-century kind of Soviet furniture, um, which to to a lot of young people is kind of cool and interesting. I love it. I've actually, you know, just behind me and all over my place, I have furniture that I plucked off the street here and restored. This is good good quality furniture. Actually, it holds up pretty well, but. But yeah, so here you never got that nostalgia amongst youth, right? So you wouldn't see a hip little cafe with like communist motifs and things. Now it's kind of starting to change because now the generations coming up don't remember it. But for Bulgarians, you know, the nostalgia was more for older people. So so yeah, you don't see this kind of more youthful nostalgia. And in fact, for a long time, it felt like it, the, the thing here was that, like, we don't talk about that. Like, it didn't happen. Just sort of ignore it. Uh, we we do, don't like to sort of acknowledge that, that communism happened unless you were someone's grandmother, in which case, you're oh, it was the best time. Uh, things were so much better back then. Yeah, because uh, talking about the early 90s, I mean, that was the wild, wild west after the fall of communism and the communist bloc. And it was just go for broke and make as much money as you can. And I was talking to an American in Moscow a couple of years ago. And uh, he was talking about what it was like in the early 90s. It was very sort of spy versus spy, gangster versus gangster, a very dangerous time, a lot of corruption, no oversight. And this American guy was telling me how he was, you know, hustling for his slice of the pie. And he told me that his one cool trick to gain access anywhere in any circumstance without attracting suspicion would be to tell people he was Bulgarian. Because because he said no one in Russia knew what Bulgarians looked like or sounded like, and there was no real kind of baggage associated with Bulgaria. <laughs> so he'd be in like Flynn. Um, but he said that that was just like the, the golden ticket to kind of just yeah. get into any nefarious conversation with anybody. I could see that working, but yeah, it's always been funny. You know, Bulgaria's got a long, long history with Russia, uh, kind of love-hate relationship back and forth. And I've always felt it's kind of like that, that the Bulgarians, not all, but many Bulgarians look up to Russia as, oh, they liberated us from the Ottoman oppression and, and we're so grateful. And, and Russia's like, I never think of you at all. Like, <laughs> the classic dysfunctional relationship. And there's that same thing that during the communist bloc era, at some point, Bulgaria actually wanted to join the Soviet Union to become a Soviet Republic. And the Soviet Union was like, we're good. Well, so, so they actually volunteered. They were like, just take us. Yes. Just yeah. we're lying back and thinking of England. Go for it. And, and that's what I said. Like, like Bulgaria was just the most loyal state in the communist bloc. It just could not find a state more loyal so much that they wanted to, to really join the team. Put me in, coach. Uh, and the coach <laughs> was like, maybe just hang out on the bench. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel like that's a bit indicative of the relationship. So your, your friend's story makes a lot of sense to me. 
What were the ways, Eric, you could get yourself a slightly sweeter deal if you were growing up in a communist country? So I'm quite familiar with the tales of sporting excellence that you got in the Eastern Bloc. So if you were a talented track and field athlete, if you were a great cyclist, then you might get better food and you might get better, better lodgings. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the lodgings, your lifestyle was based on the, your job, right? So like my in-laws live in a neighborhood that's just called like chemistry, basically, or like chemist because they're chemists. Ah. And like this neighborhood was built for chemists who worked at a particular like pharmaceutical plant. Um, and so, you know, now, of course, you know, people have sold and you've know, had the free market for a while. So this has changed. But for a while, you know, you'd have a whole you know, big apartment block and like, well, everyone who lives in this apartment block are the, you know, uh, mid-level engineers of this particular firm or whatever. Yeah, you got a better job uh, or you joined the Communist Party, of course, all those things could definitely sweeten the deal for you. Whereas, yeah, if you, you know, if your family had a, a history of sort of being against the communists, then you could be blocked from university education. Uh, I have plenty of friends whose whose parents were, you know, extremely bright, grew up during that time, but because their their family had been, you know, on a different political side in decades past, that uh, their parents were forbidden from pursuing higher education and really kind of shut out of better opportunities. So, you know, there are a lot of different ways, but it all came down to if you could make yourself useful to the party in any kind of a way, then you got a sweeter deal. And what about other cultural exports? So Katie and I who were listening this morning to the Bulgarian state television and radio female voice choir, who Katie, every time we hear them, blow our mind. Oh, I love them so much. Now, you know, um, here's a funny thing. They actually came out uh, in the UK on the very hip record label 4AD in the 1980s. Turns out that um, the lead singer of Bauhaus, Peter Murphy, discovered them. Of course, they've been going for ages. And then before long, uh, everyone from Kate Bush to Linda Ronstadt to David Bowie to Jerry Garcia was raving about them. But yeah, just those masked voices singing those spooky, dissonant, heartbreaking harmonies. Such an interesting, very kind of niche thing to uh, have spread so widely all over the world, Eric. Yeah, music has always been a, a big kind of cultural export. Even today, you know, I, I serve on the board of the Fulbright Committee here. And so I work with a lot of people doing educational exchanges and things here. And you get a lot of people who come here to study music and dance. One of the biggest heights that Bulgaria had was that um, some of these Bulgarian female vocalists that one of their songs was sent on the Voyager space probe. And so, you know, this Bulgarian music has left the solar system, long since left the solar system. And the woman whose voice was, who recorded that, she didn't know until like someone visited her village and told her, and she's just sitting here in her little village house, and like, yo, your, your voice is on a golden record in space. And she was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, other, otherwise, I remember, Tom, you might be familiar with this. One of Bulgaria's biggest exports during the communist period was wine. Yeah, Bulgarian wine, Eric, was the sort of wine you could get at the age of 16 from an off-license who didn't care how old you were. And it would often come not in bottles, but in the so sort of Tetra Pak cartons you get milk in. And it would be really cheap. And if I'm honest, quite rough, but that may have been because I was 16 and I was drinking a lot of it. <laughs> no, it, it was rough. I mean, this, this is the thing. Bulgaria has a very old wine culture. And before the communist period, they, they produced excellent wines. Famously, like Winston Churchill, his favorite wine came from a little town called Melnik that's still famous for its wine production today. But essentially, communists took over and they collectivized all the winemaking. And so quality just plummeted and it was all about 
production. And so if I remember right, uh, maybe it was up into the 80s that Bulgaria was something like the third largest producer of wine in the world, which is crazy considering how small Bulgaria is. And there's a, you know, a few wine regions here. But, you know, the 90s since then, it's been about, you know, crawling back and now quality's back and there's really excellent and very affordable Bulgarian wines. That's one of those things that really changed. And, and I imagine for a lot of people, particularly in countries like the UK, you know, they thought of Bulgaria, they probably thought of this cheap, really tough wine that was widely available because it was just mass produced with uh, gusto by the, the communist farmers here. There's something that all communist bloc countries have in common, Eric, and that is an organization generally with quite an innocent sounding acronym but a dark purpose. And in Bulgaria, that was the KDS, which, Katie, sounds like it could be a furniture store. I think it sounds like it could be an avant-garde rave band. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so the the, the secret service, kind of the the internal state security here, you know, was a big thing. Obviously, you know, not quite on the scale of like the, the Stasi or something like this in East Germany, but still fairly widespread and what's interesting and unique about the the service here was, you know, doing all the usual things you you, you imagine, you know, secret police always do, but they still have a, a quite profound legacy. And a lot of major Bulgarian political figures were informants or members of state security. And whereas other countries have had kind of truth and reconciliation commissions, Bulgaria never did. And a lot of those records are still sealed and the kind of the powers that be fight very hard to make sure they are still kind of kept under wraps. And so, you know, whatever, it's very clear to to anyone, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on, but that the ties that were built within Bulgaria's state security, those ties still exist and those are still foundational for a lot of business and and politics and things in Bulgaria today. I mean, there's been a very interesting kind of evolution uh, of these things. I mean, I remember years ago when I I moved to Sofia and, you know, getting a job here, doing all these normal things, paying my taxes. And I noticed that there was a 10% flat tax here. And I asked my roommate, I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, they have a flat tax. Like, which uh, political party implemented that? He was like, oh, the socialists, the former communists. And the political science major in me was like, what? Wait, 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 a socialist party implemented a flat tax? That doesn't make any sense. But the more I thought about it, it actually makes perfect sense. Because that's kind of how the, the communist socialist party has evolved here, is that it doesn't really... have anything to do with socialism anymore or communism it's more kind of it has two uh, constituencies nostalgic old people who just vote for them habitually and the people who kind of benefited from privatization and the those business people and that's why you would have a ostensibly socialist party implementing this very very regressive pro-business pro-rich people taxation system because it's representing all the communist party members who you know through their state security ties through all these you know different mechanisms managed to benefit from privatization and you know steal these state assets and become very wealthy and so it's this this weird evolution that at face value makes zero sense and is completely baffling uh, to anyone who knows anything about politics and political science but it actually makes a lot of sense and you can kind of see how uh, how you know quote unquote communism has evolved here over time oh I love that analysis I mean that just really cuts to the chase of uh, you know what the real goals were it's basically whoever's in power wants to stay in power and speaking of which and hearkening uh, back to the good old days and the folk ways of the uh, communist bloc wondering if Putin has an eye on Bulgaria. Um, He's had his way with Crimea and Ukraine and uh, 
perhaps uh, could be encroaching on Belarus. Uh, is there a sense that perhaps Bulgaria could be in danger of uh, Russian advancement? Yeah, I mean, th- this this is there's so much history here because you know from basically from the very beginning uh, of Bulgaria's semi-independence in the late 19th century, from 1878 onwards, one of the most fundamental questions in Bulgarian politics has been: Are you a Russophile or a Russophobe? Nowadays, it's it's a lot of kind of cultural things, you know, people um, sort of being homophobic, uh, sort of being uh, xenophobic, afraid of migration, all these kinds of things. And they see Putin as sort of their savior and, uh, you know, also religion coming into that. Of, you know, he's the one who will protect, protect orthodoxy and restore orthodoxy, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I would argue that actually Russia's treated Bulgaria very badly and always completely taken them for granted and, and sort of used and abused them as they like for whatever suited their needs in the, at the moment. And I think that carried through for the full kind of period of uh, the communist bloc. But a lot of people see it differently. So the, it's still uh, an intense debate. And one of those things that, you know, if you took a group of, you know, 10 Bulgarians of mixed ages and backgrounds and brought it up, you'd get an argument going very quickly. How does it all fall apart in the end for the communist state in Bulgaria, Eric? Because I think, Katie, we're probably familiar with what happens in East Germany because we've seen the footage of the Berlin Wall coming down. And we know that in some countries there was, well, there's the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia. And in Romania, it all turned a bit nasty and Ceausescu gets hung by his own people. So what happens in Bulgaria? So, yeah, that's one of these big things that, uh, as I said, communism for Bulgaria was a lot calmer. And so, you know, whereas, yeah, Ceausescu gets uh, taken into a courtyard and shot because he was a maniac and, and just did insane things and and directly led to many Romanians being extremely hungry and sort of desperate for, for a long time. In Bulgaria, you know, Todorovkov, the dictator here, like, yeah, he was just sort of a yes man. And and because Bulgaria was so loyal, it got quite a bit of uh, goodies from Moscow, quite a lot of support. And so things weren't quite as bad. And so, yes, you know, at the moment, uh, communism is collapsing in Eastern Europe. There are protests. There's people taking to the streets, uh, you know, kind of making the case for democracy. But ultimately, that wasn't as strong as in other countries. And so that's why you didn't get the you know Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You didn't get uh, someone besides the communists, the former communists winning the first democratic elections. Ultimately, the transition here was sort of reluctant that Bulgaria, you know, the, the communist party fell largely because all the other communist parties fell and just like they couldn't keep it together by themselves. And in many ways, that is the root of a lot of the problems that Bulgaria has today, that there wasn't a hard, clean split. It was just sort of a muddling, okay, I guess we'll move along and uh, try the next thing and uh, see what we do and see how it all works out. And so without, you know, truth and reconciliation, without uh, putting someone new in power right away, just that transition was kind of slow and muddled and and it didn't happened to the same extent that it happened elsewhere and that led to bulgaria not kind of uh sort of not sort of advancing as quickly as a lot of other countries did eric thank you so much for unblocking katie and i on the eastern block yeah uh this was juicy stuff you know going in i wasn't sure that i had that many questions about bulgaria and now i think i underestimated the country uh that punches above its weight I mean, that's how I, that's why I got interested in Bulgarian history in the first place. It's like, you never think about it. It's always kind of on the sidelines, but when you actually look at its own story, it's incredibly fascinating and, and seeing how it weaves into these bigger uh, global kind of movements and trends and things and forces. It's uh, it's always a great story. 
Thank you, Eric. And if people would like to know more, they can listen to your podcast, the Bulgarian History Podcast, and all their usual podcast places. <laughs> Katie, I find myself wondering, as we listen to Eric there, what life would be like for you and I in the communist bloc? Would we be able to get ourselves some blue jeans? Would we wear a different coloured jean? Would we be able to listen to the music we want to listen to? Would we be snitched on or would we be snitches? Well... I can answer your hypotheticals with some actualities because I was a youngin in the Soviet Union in the early 70s. I was 9, 10, 11 years old. And I can tell you that the more intrepid amongst my playmates, uh, usually the boys, uh, Westerners, uh, would position themselves outside the prestige shops that only foreigners could use with their dollars. And they would have various contraband from America, from the West, that included sunglasses, chewing gum, occasionally a copy of the New York Times, (gasps) and once in a blue moon, a pair of jeans. And they would, these little kids, they were like little street urchin American kids, you know, mini gangsters, age 13, 14, 15. uh, And they would do a little DIY black market right in the heart of Moscow and the Russian kids and young people knew to go over and score their goods, score their gear from the kids. So that's how you would do it. And I also do recall being stopped in the street once by a man who recognized me as a foreigner because I had uh, fancy uh, windbreakers from Helsinki. (laughs) And he stopped me and very furtively asked me if I would take a letter. He said, is not bad, is not bad, is just letter to my family in Philadelphia. And he let me know that there was no way he could get word to them that he was okay and doing well and could I just mail it for him. So I took that letter back to my dad, you know, who worked for the American government and said, I've just been past this on the street. Did the letter get mailed? This I don't know. I knew in my role as just one part of the chain not to ask questions. And I have another memory of um, you talked about music and whether – the people behind the communist bloc had access to music. And by the time I lived in Moscow in the early 70s, of course, people knew about the Beatles and they would be getting uh, music from the World Service. You know, if they had a, yeah. a shortwave radio and they could pick up things like the World Service, BBC World Service or um, Voice of America. So I do remember listening to those stations and hearing such pop hits as Chirpy Chirpy Cheap, cheap. Last night I heard my mama singing a song. Chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap. And then another one was uh, My Dingaling. Mm. Uh, so Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry, My Dingaling. Obscene so, song. So all, yeah, really obscene. So all the top hits. But for my part, what I used to do was DJ from my bedroom in the American embassy. So we were aware that the walls were bugged. Any kind of Western facility, certainly the apartment buildings, uh, we just knew that uh, Ivan was in the walls, Sasha was in the walls, and in fact, <laughs> one of the regular things that we would do upon re-entering our homes was just to call out in a cheery voice, hi, Boris, hi, Ivan, we're home. <laughs> and so continuing that, I had my real-life invisible friends, I figured, listening in breathlessly on my every maneuver, so I would play DJ, and I'd get out the latest Led Zeppelin, so I would have been playing all this stuff, and then taunting 
taunting the KGB in the walls and saying, you don't have this in <laughs> communist countries. This is what we get to listen to in the West. And then I dropped the needle on yet another sludgy blues rock <laughs> anthem. <laughs> Well, Katie, I'm going to tell you about another podcast that people might like, which is Alan Cummings Shelves, also a very good anecdotalist. On this podcast, you join the wonderful actor Alan Cumming as he takes you through the stories of his life through the random objects on his shelves. Oh, and you know what? He's joined by some brilliant friends. Sir Ian McKellen joins him to talk about a dog collar. Cindy Lauper helps him piece together the story of a pair of leather gloves and find out about Alan's Spice Girls lunchbox, mmm, delicious, with Jerry Halliwell. Yeah, these stories are great. So search for Alan Cumming Shelves on your podcast app. Oh, and next week on We Didn't Start the Fire, we are going to be discussing in great and gory detail the power broker and sinister lawyer Roy Cohn. Creepy. Officially creepy. Yes, capital C. And if you want to follow us on social media, we are at Spread That Fire on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to email us, maybe you see yourself a guest. Maybe you know a guest. Maybe you just want to chat to me and Katie. Mm. We are at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. Meet you there. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode... We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of. 
uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.